greater source of joy or security or comfort to be found in all this world. And I've looked at a lot of different opinions in my studies and so forth, and you can find in the Word of God. Please turn with me in your Bibles this Lord's Day morning to Isaiah, the 40th chapter. Our Old Testament reading will be found in Isaiah 40, and then we'll read in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2. In Isaiah 40, we'll read the first 11 verses. Hear this as it is, the very word of God. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received of Jehovah's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one that cries, Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of Jehovah. Make level in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the uneven shall be made level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Jehovah shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Jehovah hath spoken it. The voice of one saying, Cry, and one said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the breath of Jehovah bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth. But the word of our God shall stand forever. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, Get thee up on a high mountain, O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord Jehovah will come as a mighty one, and his arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and will gently lead those that have their young. And then in the New Testament, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, we begin the reading at the 21st verse. Hear again God's word. For hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who his own self bear our sins in his body upon the tree, that we, having died unto sins, might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For ye were going astray like sheep, but are now returned unto the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And thus far the reading of God's word. If we were to look for an idiom that would describe 
late 20th century culture. If we wanted an expression that kind of captured the spirit of the uh, society in which we live, it seems to me that you could hardly do better than to use the term uptight. We are an uptight people, and we're uptight for a lot of reasons, and we deal with that uptightness in a lot of different ways. We're worried about our health and our safety. Sometime, if you have a free moment or two, just take the daily newspaper and thumb through it from beginning to end and just look at the advertisements that you find in the newspaper. That'll tell you something about what people in our culture think about and what's on their hearts and what concerns them. You know, uh, people who do advertising, they study this sort of thing. They want to reach out and appeal to people and touch them where they are so that they'll respond to whatever's being sold. And so notice what sorts of things are appealed to. We are a people looking for safety. We are a people who are looking for comfort. We are a people who are worried about our environment. We're a people that are worried about our economy, both national and personal. And our newspaper ads reflect that. We're a worried people. We're an uptight people. We're people who are worried about other people letting us down. It's not just in the outward things of life, money, car safety, whatever it may be, but we're worried that we live in a world where those who claim to love us will not continue to love us. We're worried that people might hurt our feelings, so we hold back from getting involved in things or pursuing relationships because we know what it is to be hurt. We're worried about um, our boss being upset with us. We're worried about the police. Now, maybe you're not somebody who's selling drugs or you know, murdering or something like that, but I'll bet you you get out on the interstate and you pass somebody who's a highway patrolman, and all of a sudden you start worrying about things like, ooh, how fast am I going? <laughs> we worry about being corrected. Children worry about their teachers being harsh toward them. Um, we're a people that are just full of problems, you know, and worries. Who knows what's going to happen to us? There was a day when we thought of our society living on the brink of nu nuclear holocaust, and that was supposed to be weighing on everybody. I don't know, I never really ran into people that worried all that much about it. I, it didn't seem like something that people really thought a lot about. I come from Southern California. That's supposed to be earthquake country. And when I travel around the, uh, the rest of the nation, people often refer to that, say, how can you live out there with those earthquakes and so forth? You know, and the funny thing is, I don't think people think very much about it in Southern California, to be very honest. Now, granted, there's a lot more thinking about it once we've had an earthquake that has made you know, national attention or something like that. But you know, we go about our lives. We don't worry about that. Most people don't worry about nuclear holocaust, but we do worry. We do worry a lot. We're really uptight about things. We see that there are problems all around us. You know, there's evidence of this kind of concern about life in ways that sometimes we wouldn't expect. Why do you think we have such a great drug problem in this country? And before it, and actually through this drug problem as well, an alcohol problem in this country. Why is our modern society so steeped in drugs, a numbing of the mind? This is not just a problem in the United States of America. It's worldwide. It's um, an absolute um, uh, epidemic of drunkenness in Soviet Russia. Why do we have this problem? here and around the world. Why do people get so caught up in the use of drugs? Now, I, I don't use drugs. I, I take medicine for my heart every morning, but 
I don't use drugs recreationally. Back when I had open heart surgery, however, I had a week there where in order to take care of the pain from the opening up of the chest cavity, I was given morphine. And from that one week's experience, I think I can tell you why people take drugs. Nothing bothers you when they give you the morphine. I tell you, they probably could have come into my room after giving me an injection of morphine and told me that my family had been killed in an automobile accident, and I wouldn't have been happy about it, but I probably would have said, oh, gee, that's too bad. <laughs> Nothing bothers you when you're on drugs. Drunkenness and drugs are a response in our culture to this uptightness. We just don't know what to do with We can't stand it. We have no comfort, and so we seek it elsewhere in becoming numb. Look at the pervasive use of psychologists in our culture. It's just incredible how many psychologists are making a living. Whereas I think it's scandalous, too. I mean, we've got enough pastors around that we shouldn't need all these psychologists. But we have psychologists galore and various pop therapies. It's amazing. Um, I've not visited one of your supermarkets since I've been here in Kansas, but back home, even in the supermarket, they have book displays with pop psychology there, you know, and everybody's trying to feel okay and, you know, get things right in their life. New Age meditation techniques are not simply pushed in our public schools, and that becomes a controversy and so forth, but we find um, large uh, corporations hire people to come in to teach their executives how to relax and often it's new age techniques that are being taught to them yoga and things of that nature George Gallup reports in a recent poll that even with respect to um, a portion of our society you wouldn't expect to be all that concerned about these things that 25 percent of Roman Catholics believe in reincarnation 25%. A third of Roman Catholics, according to the Gallup poll, believe in astrology. They don't simply read it in the paper. They believe it. A third of them believe it. Here you have people that are even coming out of a nominally Christian framework, and an authoritarian, comforting framework, you might think, and yet they're looking, they're seeking for some kind of comfort in this world. In the general population, more than a third of our people practice yoga. 40% of our culture apparently believe that they can contact dead spirits and get guidance for life and comfort and so forth. There's just a lot of scared people in this world. There's a lot of hurting people in this world whose hearts bear testimony that they are yearning for the supernatural stability and sovereign care of God. And since they either don't believe it's there or they have some distorted view of the world and God, they seek it in very um, inappropriate ways, from drugs to reincarnation, new age, and all the rest. We're an uptight people. But you know, it isn't going to do me a whole lot of good this morning to expound the Word of God for the sake of those uptight people out there. There are a lot of... I just want you to know that you live in a culture of uptightness. I want to expound the Word of God, however, for you this morning, because even though I don't know you very well, my guess is you're uptight too. That uh, in many ways you're like the culture round about you. Now, of course, you have your own individual stories. You have your own individual problems. Um, none of us is exactly alike that way. We all know what it is to live in a world that many times seems so harsh, 
seem so unfair, seem so unrelenting, the things that bear us down and, and sometimes appear to grind us into dust. You may not come to church and confess that to one another. In fact, it's my experience, I've pastored for a number of years and I've preached for um, many more than that. It's been my experience with Christian people, when we come to church, we, we do a pretty good job of wearing a mask. We put on our best front. And I'm, and I'm not trying to you know, tell you all come to church and turn this into a whining, complaining session you know, in, in the place of worship. I understand why we put on our Sunday, our Sunday best. But the fact is, you cannot judge from what you see in the people around about you. You cannot judge the state of peace of mind and heart that they have. And there are many of you who, in the loneliness of your bedroom at night, may say, am I the only one who hurts? Am I the only one who lacks comfort in this world? I look at all these Christians at church, they seem to be doing just fine. And so take it from a pastor, somebody who behind closed doors hears the stories and talks to people, they aren't just fine. They're like you. They're insecure. They've been hurt. They worry. They're uptight too. Some Christian believers, even in this congregation, I'm sure, continue to suffer, and to suffer in silence, not knowing the full consolation that God sets forth in his own self-revelation, not experiencing the healing power and the protecting power of God. So as we begin to look at God's word today, I'm asking, where should we turn as God's people in terms of in our, in our times of trial, when things get tough for us, where do we turn? What gives us steadiness? What gives us assurance? What gives us hope and healing in this world? What soothes us and calms our fears as God's people? We turn to Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 40 this morning, and I want to show you the way in which Isaiah assures us of the comfort of God in our lives. Isaiah chapter 40 sets forth in beautiful language one of the best-known prophetic messages of the coming Messiah. Isaiah is known, I'm sure, to all of you as the prophet in Isaiah 53, chapter 53, talks of the suffering servant of the Lord who comes to be bruised, to be broken for our iniquities, the one who will die in our place. Well, Isaiah's prophecy tells us of the suffering servant who loves us and cares for us and how God is going to save us. But it's not just in chapter 53. Indeed, chapters 39 through the end of Isaiah speak of this messianic age. And in chapter 40, we read the call that God's people should be comforted. All four of the gospel writers, if you turn to the New Testament, you would see that all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them allude to verses 3, 4, and 5 of Isaiah 40. We read it this morning, but let's look at it again. The voice of one that cries, Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of Jehovah. Make way. God is coming. And what will you do when God comes? You're going to flatten out all the high places. You're going to lift up the valleys. You're going to make a smooth, straight path because God himself is coming to be with you. Jehovah is coming to be with his people. And all four of the gospel writers allude to this and speak of it in terms of the advent, the coming 
of Jesus Christ. It is John the baptizer who is the one who cries out in the wilderness to make way for Jehovah's coming. It's John the baptizer, according to the gospel writers, who prepares for the coming of Jehovah. I want you to stop and think about that just for a minute. What an incredible description that is. It's really shocking. Isaiah says, Jehovah is coming. Make a straight way for him. Later, John the Baptist appears in the wilderness crying out, Make way, Jehovah is coming. And who was he talking about? He's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth appears as Jehovah, the one that the forerunner that Isaiah spoke of was alluding to. That is really shocking. Jesus is not some mere man. Jesus is not even a man highly favored of God. Jesus is God himself. Isaiah said, Jehovah's coming. John the Baptist prepares the way for Jehovah. He prepares the way for Jesus. Isaiah chapter 40 is a transitional chapter in the prophecy of Isaiah. It was the great accomplishment of Isaiah the prophet that within his own lifetime, the prophecy would come true that Jerusalem would not fall to the Assyrian Empire. It would be very hard for people in that day not to believe that the mighty, powerful, vicious Assyrian Empire would not just roll over Jerusalem. But Isaiah promised that Israel would not, that Judah would not fall to Assyria. But in chapter 39 of his prophecy, Isaiah says Judah will be taken captive, not by the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians. In chapter 40 now, to the end of the book, looks forward to God's sovereign redemption. Chapter 39 says, you will fall to the Babylonians, but God will comfort you. God will save you. It looks forward to the deliverance that God will bring from captivity in Babylon. Looks forward to the coming of Jehovah's suffering servant. Looks forward to the glory of the Messianic age. Just so you see where Isaiah 40 then is in the prophecy. Let's look specifically at its message. It's a message of comfort and good news. The first two verses tell you that this is a message that is intended to comfort you, to give you peace of mind and heart, to settle you and spiritually give you assurance. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, her iniquity is pardoned, she has received of Jehovah's hand double for all her sins. This is a message of good news. Look at verse 9. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up on a high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the Ju uh, cities of Judah, behold your God. Isaiah says, I've got a comfortable message for you. I've got good news for you. And you know what's really great about it? It's comforting news from God. You comfort my people, Isaiah. You tell them that it's Jehovah himself who speaks from his heart to your heart and says, take it easy. Be at rest. I am the sovereign one. I care for you. 
If you lived in Isaiah's day, you might find it hard to believe that. You might find it hard not to be uptight. Chapter 39 has just said, God is going to judge you. Isaiah, however, is called now to tell his people that though God will chasten them, yet he loves them. He will not break his covenant promise. He will be faithful and true, though they have been faithless to him. And so, take it easy. Be comforted, my people. I have good news for you, in addition to the bad news you've just heard. Good news as well. Isaiah was to cry out to Jerusalem, first, that her warfare was now accomplished. Isaiah was to tell his people that the period of misery that was going to come because of her sin, this period of tribulation due to the transgressions of the people, had run its course and the calamity of the people would now be put to an end. Comfort my people. Cry out. Don't hold back. Don't be hesitant. Don't be insecure about this. Be absolutely certain. Be bold in this, Isaiah. Tell my people, your warfare is over. Tell her, secondly, her iniquity is pardoned. Not only is the period of misery going to pass, but God says, your iniquity will be pardoned. And you know, I don't know, it doesn't make any difference how many times I preach this message about a forgiving God, it just overwhelms my heart. How can that be? How can God forgive the sins of his people? How can he forgive me? How can he forgive you? When you look at the kind of person you are in terms of the holiness of God, how could God forgive you? How could he forgive me? Now, I might understand how God would forgive me if I graded on an average. And if I looked around, I said, well, yeah, there's some really lousy people in this world. I'm not like them. But God doesn't grade on moral averages, does he? He doesn't grade on a curve. He grades according to the total perfection of his own holy nature. And he is so holy, prophet Habakkuk tells us that he cannot even look upon sin. The psalmist says, God, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? I can't stand in God's presence. I dare not approach him. I know that I'm unworthy of him and his love. It's worse than that. It's not just that I'm unworthy of his love. What I am worthy of is his wrath and his curse. He would have every right to hate me and reject me as being contrary to what is righteous and just and good and loving and compassionate. Everything that's in his nature, I am the opposite of. How can God forgive me? You probably ask that question too. Isaiah, however, is sent with a message of comfort. Not only is the period of your misery over, but God has pardoned your iniquity because a sacrifice for sin will be favorably accepted. The debt that is due because of the iniquity of God's people will be paid. And of course, this is where Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, is so comforting and so wonderful to us, showing us the grace of God, that one will come into this world who is favored of God, one who is sin-free and yet will be the sin-bearer for his people and will suffer and die that a sacrifice will be made that God will accept. Cry out to Jerusalem. Her warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity is pardoned. And she has received double 
despite her sins. This receiving of double is an allusion, I believe, to the law of God. The law of God tells us that when a person steals something and he is to be punished, he must make restitution. He must pay double for it. So that if someone comes into your house and steals your stereo, if he were punished in the way that the Bible says he should be punished, he would not only give you back your stereo, but then he would have to pay you for the stereo as well. He would pay double. Now, do you see what's so amazing about what Isaiah is saying? God will pay to his sinful people double. God forgives our iniquity and blesses us in that forgiveness. Declare to your people that she, that they have received double, abundant blessing despite her sins. Look for a minute, Isaiah 61, verse 7. Isaiah 61, 7. There Isaiah says, Instead of your shame, you shall have double. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. Isaiah declared to my people, not only will the misery pass, not only will the sin be forgiven, but everlasting joy will be given to you. You will receive double from the Lord's hand. This will come from God himself. But now the question for us that has to be answered before we can go home is, how's God going to do that? How is God going to comfort his people? How is he going to make the misery pass? How is he going to forgive sin? How is he going to give everlasting joy and restore double to his people and blessing? How will this happen? The 10th verse of Isaiah 40 answers the question for us. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord Jehovah will come as a mighty one, and his arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. How will God accomplish this comforting of his people? He himself will come as the sovereign one, as the all-powerful one. He will establish his rule, and with his mighty arm, he will take control of things. And so we might expect that the one who is going to come as our Savior to forgive sin and to turn away misery and to provide everlasting joy would be one who would come in military might and regal strength. Someone who might appear as a person that will put down the nations and all who oppose. Someone who was going to be like a mighty warrior. That seems to be the picture. At least Isaiah says he will have that effectiveness. He'll come as a mighty one with a strong arm. And if you've been listening to this point, all of that, all of what I've been saying now is finally so we can look at verse 11 and understand what I want you to know as an uptight people today. That the one who has come with almighty sovereign strength to accomplish the comfort of his people is now described in this way. He will feed his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that have their young. Isaiah 40, verse 11, utilizes a precious figure of speech for the coming Almighty Savior who is going to sovereignly rule his people, rule them for their good. Isaiah likens him not to a military commander, but to a shepherd. A shepherd who makes provision for the needs of his sheep 
and leads them where they should go. This is not going to be like the hireling. In John the 10th chapter, Jesus tells us the person who's hired to care for the sheep, he runs away when danger appears, but not the good shepherd. The good shepherd doesn't abandon his sheep in a time of danger. The good shepherd meets their needs. The good shepherd goes through their problems with them. The good shepherd stands up against all who would assault them. The good shepherd guides them in the proper way. The good shepherd feeds them and provides for all their needs. This is the symbol of a shepherd who has tender care and constant watchfulness for his sheep. Yes, the Messiah will come as a mighty ruler, verse 10 says, but he will be known to his flock as a gentle shepherd of souls. What do we learn about Jesus, the Messiah? the mighty one who was sent as the king into this world. We learn from this that Jesus is a caring, compassionate Savior. Turn with me to Matthew, the ninth chapter, verse 36. Matthew 9, verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were distressed, they were uptight, and scattered as sheep, not having a shepherd. When Jesus looked out on the crowds, the Bible says his heart went out to them. He looked on them with compassion. You have to wonder about that. I'm so glad the Lord Jesus is as glorious as the Bible presents him. I know I would not have been like Jesus. If I would have looked out on these crowds in their ignorance and in their confusion and often in their hostility toward me. They are so stupid sometimes. They are so violent sometimes. I would not look upon these people with compassion, but Jesus did. He looked on the crowds and had compassion on them. He saw them as distressed, and Jesus felt their distress. He saw them as sheep that had no shepherd. What do we learn about Jesus? We learn of his shepherd's concern for the scattering of the sheep. Jesus cares when our congregations suffer. Jesus cares when the people in our churches are distressed and uptight. He looks upon the flock with compassion. Indeed, in 1 Peter 2, verse 25, which we read in our scripture reading, Peter himself uses this image of Jesus. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2 at the 25th verse. For you were going astray like sheep. You were scattering. You had no defense. You had no guidance. You were in distress. You were going astray like sheep. But you're now returned unto the shepherd of your souls the shepherd of your souls, as sheep who were wandering astray. We have, by the grace of God, been brought back to the shepherd of our souls, the one who has compassion on sheep that are in distress. And how does this shepherd rule over us? How does he take care of our needs? How does he correct us when we need correcting? How does he direct us when we are lost? With what spirit and attitude does he handle us? How does he offer us this protection and comfort? Have you noticed how the inspired writers describe the manner of the shepherd 
and how he cares for his flock. Have you noticed how Isaiah particularly described it in verse 11? He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that have their young. He's going to, first of all, take care of all of our needs and all of our distress by means of his arms. So what? Why his arm? Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord Jehovah will come as a mighty one, and his arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him. The mighty power of the arms of the Savior are being referred to in verse 11. He is going to guide us and correct us and comfort us and protect us by means of his arms. (coughs) Jesus will never let go, and no power will ever overcome him as he holds us to himself. In John 10, verse 28, Jesus uses another image, but similar. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Once I take these sheep to myself, no one will tear them away from me. Paul puts it this way in the 8th chapter, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Shall hardship? Shall persecution? Shall famine? Nakedness? Danger? Even the sword? No, in all these things, in all of these things, through all of our distress, persecution, danger, through all of it, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because he holds us with his mighty arm, nothing tears us away from him. I want to share with you just very honestly that in the deepest moments of gloom that I've had in my life, And I'm not talking about long ago when I was a young believer. I'm talking about after I was a seminary professor, after I was a writer of theology, after I had counseled people for years, God put me through a time of distress in my life where I had days where I even asked, can I be a believer if this is happening to me? Do I really belong to you, God? Do you care for me? I'm not proud that I have that experience, but that's how weak I was spiritually. And you have days when you suffer, either from persecution or abuse or the things that you need in this world that you lack or because your prayers don't seem to be answered. We suffer and we go through that. We, has God torn me away? Can anything, can the persecution or distress separate me? And the wonder of this passage is that with his mighty arm, he holds on to his lambs. Nothing snatches us away from him. Isaiah 40 tells us that not only does he hold his lambs in his arm, he carries them in his bosom. In his bosom he will lift them up, the Hebrew says. He holds us next to his heart. I was always uncomfortable. I guess to a certain extent I still am. I was always uncomfortable when I read in the New Testament of John, who was the beloved disciple who at the Lord's Supper leaned his head against the bosom of our Lord. I always thought to myself, that's too intimate. That's too close. And here the Bible tells us that for all of us, like John, he takes us to his bosom and hugs us tight and loves us. The reference for Isaiah is to newborn lambs, not sheep who are old enough to wander away. And, uh, and then walk back on their own. 
He's talking about those little ones who, when they wander, have to be hoisted up on the shoulders of the shepherd and carried back. And that's the way Jesus cares for us. He doesn't just say, how did you miss it? I told you where to go. I pointed the pathway out. You wandered away. You got yourself in trouble. Now you're hurt. I'm really ashamed of you, but come back. I'll give you a second. Jesus doesn't treat us like that. He hugs us to his own bosom. He holds us like little lambs. And as Isaiah says, with gentleness leads them. With gentleness. What you have here in Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, is a combination of the two most wonderful things in the world when you think about how uptight you can be. The sovereign, almighty power of God and the gentle way in which he uses his sovereignty to help his people. God does not exercise his sovereignty toward his people in a harsh way. God does not exercise his almighty power in some cold and indifferent way. The Bible says he exercises his sovereignty in a gentle, compassionate, and a comforting way. The psalmist says in 145 verse 9, his tender mercies are over all his works. In verse 17 of that same psalm, Jehovah is gracious in all his works. In everything that God does, he is gracious about it. In all of his works, we see his tender mercy. You know, we dread the idea of sovereignty, and often we should dread the sovereignty of men, because we have no assurance that those who have power over us will use that power for our good. Often those who have power over us overpower us for our ill. They abuse us, they mislead us, they mistreat us, they hurt us. Sovereignty is something that can be used unfairly, without mercy, without concern for well-being. But when the Bible presents the sovereignty of God, don't you see, it presents the sovereignty of God as something which is holy and separate and completely different from the abusive power and sovereignty of men. God's sovereignty is tied to his love and compassion and concern for the good of his people. In Romans, the eighth chapter, the Apostle Paul could thus say, having exalted the sovereignty of God, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. And I hope, brothers and sisters, that you might have the opportunity in some way or another, to go through a period of distress in your own life when this verse can now no longer be just some kind of cheap platitude that someone said because they didn't have anything better to tell you. All things work together for good. I hope that you might go through a time of distress where you come out at the other end and you can say from your heart, I understand that now. That my sovereign Savior loves me. And he put me through this and walked with me <laughs> and cared for me, and built me up, and did it for my good. Where do you turn for your comfort and assurance? I hope it's not to new age technology and, and yoga and meditation. I certainly hope it's not to alcohol and drugs. I hope it's not that you turn to self-pity and go away and say, oh, this world's such a horrible place. I hope that when you suffer, and you need the comfort of God, you'll remember what Isaiah said. He's going to come as a mighty one who shepherds his flock. 
and holds his lambs even to his bosom, where do you turn for your comfort? It would be an insult to God's adequate provision if you did not turn to him, to him alone. And do you believe that you can be kinder than God? Do you believe that you can be more faithful than your Savior? I know that when I went through tough times, I had times when I said, is this fair? Is this right? How can you do this to me, God? And God put me on my knees because I had to confess that I thought that I was kinder and more faithful than God. What a horrible thought. It's an insult to God's absolute goodness. Do we, when we have a tough time, walk by faith and in anticipation that our hardships shall be turned to our good? Both of those things. To walk in faith, trusting God, but trusting also, having the anticipation also, that he will turn all of our distress, all of our misery, to our good. When I was a young boy, I loved biscuits. I still do. And I remember when I got old enough, my mother would let me go into the kitchen and try to experiment on my own. I, th I thought one day, you know, I love biscuits so much, I'm going to make some biscuits. And I got out the recipe and the box of materials and so forth, and I started looking at all these stuff, and I said, yuck. Who would want raw eggs and flour and milk and all this? Often when we are in times of distress... We're at that point in the process that God is bringing about for us. We're at the early stages where God's just bringing the raw eggs and the milk and the flour together. And we're going, yuck, who wants all this? But you know, if God's going to make biscuits, that's where it starts. And you need to go through the times of your depression and distress and concern and uptightness in this world knowing that God's going to make biscuits out of it. It may look pretty yucky right now. Now, only Christians have the right to believe that kind of thing. You know what a privilege it is, therefore, to suffer? Only we can go through this world and have people abuse us, go through this world and be let down, go through this world and not get the things we think we need or the things that we hope for. Only we can go through this world and have sickness and see loved ones die. Only we can go through financial distress and believe biscuits are going to come out of it. No one else can believe that. Because no one else knows the sovereignty of an almighty God who comforts his people in all of their distress. And do you appreciate the tenderness and gentleness with which your Savior bears with you in that weakness? In Matthew, the 12th chapter, Isaiah 42 is quoted. And there we learn that the Messiah <clears throat> will not break even a bruised reed. So gentle is he that he doesn't come and just break off those bruised reeds, those things that are inadequate and don't live up to everything that he would want them to be. Do we praise God that in all of our troubles, in all of our distress, in all of our being uptight, even in our sinful failures, do we praise him that his tender compassion never fails? Isaiah 40 tells us that we have an almighty and merciful divine shepherd who has come into this world to give himself for our sins and to guide us in our lives and to grant us utter confidence and comfort in his love. And no power can bend his arm back, no force can reverse his compassion, and he will provide us with every good thing we need 
his tender care is either going to avert all evil from our lives or will take it and turn it to our profit. That same mighty arm that exercises invincible power over the entire universe is being used by the Savior to gather us up as lambs and carry us close to the Good Shepherd's heart. Now there's a picture of tenderness that ought to take away some of that uptightness that you're feeling today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence so thankful that you bid us to come, indeed, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and there obtain mercy and receive grace to help us in our time of need. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you loved us with an everlasting love, that you loved us to the point of death and self-sacrificially gave yourself for us, that our iniquity could be pardoned. And Lord Jesus, how we thank you that you've come to rule over us as well, to exercise your mighty power and establish your government in this world, and yet you rule over us with such tender care and compassion. We pray that you would forgive us for, in our darkest moments, looking away from you and not believing the promises of your word. We pray that you would forgive us for pitying ourselves and what we have to go through and not believing that all things truly will work together for our good. We pray that you would